0: Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson and this is episode 85 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a new episode released every single day. You get an extended interview like this one every Monday and short four or five minute daily episodes Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Now, if this is your first time listening, then please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day and you can only get all those episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So please do check us out and subscribe separately on there, please. Also, check out the YouTube channel as well. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube and you'll be able to find everything you need with all the interviews, short clips and things like that on there. Now, a huge thanks to everyone who commented on last week's big interview show with big country guitarist Bruce Watson. He was answering your questions about the 30th anniversary of the Buffalo Skinners record. So, a huge thanks to Den Hayward, Svein Horthaug, Andrew Hogg, Ted Kearney, Steve Jones and Dave Stewart. Thank you so much to everyone that got in touch following that brilliant interview. Now, today's interview is with a lead singer of a fantastic American rock band from the 60s and the 70s. They released six platinum and seven gold certified records between 1969 and 1976 and scored two number one singles in the US as well. In the States, they were seen as the precursors to hard rock and heavy metal sort of thing. They were famed for their blistering rocking shows and were promoted as the loudest band in the world. They toured with Led Zeppelin, as you'll hear, and famously sold out Shea Stadium quicker than the Beatles did. I'm talking about the brilliant Grand Funk Railroad and their singer, Mark Farner. Now, in this interview, you're going to hear about the crazy early days where the name caused some confusion, why they were too good to carry on touring with Led Zeppelin, the successful albums and singles, why Mark wanted the group to remain as a three-piece, his friendship with Jimi Hendrix and touring with Ringo Starr. So much, it's a packed interview. So, I hope you enjoy this fun chat with former Grand Funk Railroad singer Mark Farner. But let's take you back here. Uh, just a couple of years ago then, shall we? 1969 or so. Um, we'll start off with the, the Atlanta Pop Festival. It was just a couple of years ago, of course. Um, I yeah. mean, that was, that was such a big deal. It was such an incredible festival that got put on. And some amazing acts were on that bill, along with Grand Funk Railroad. Now, that was a huge thing for you guys at the time, wasn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. It's like we didn't have a record deal. Nobody had ever heard the words that you had just mentioned. Uh, and and the guy who brought us on the MC for those three days he had three days, brother Paul and he never got it right oh, in no. three days three times. I'm thinking there was a lot of drugs going around there at that festival and maybe just being among that you, you know those people there're uh, it was rubbing off on him. He would say Grand Frank Railway or something. I mean, he would never <laughs> said it right. Uh, but we made sure that by, by the third day, they knew who Grand Funk was.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and everybody did. I mean, you kind of just burst onto the scene, didn't you, at that stage? And and um, and what you were doing as well at that time, it, w- it was it was different. It was raw. It was noisy. It was it was loud and exuberant. I mean, what was it that made that kind of music come together for you guys? Because you were only a three piece at this stage. So so what was it that drove that kind of music from
1: you guys? Well, I worked at West Amplifiers, okay. which uh, was a, the amplifiers that we used on stage. And Dave West, God rest his soul, he uh, he put together this amplifier, and he and he he was looking at the schematics one day, and he said, "Holy shit! I I I found out what I did wrong." And I said, "What are you talking wrong, man? These things sound great." He says, "I wired this this wires backwards in this Dynaco." He was following because he was trying to reproduce something, and then add some of his own electronics to it. And I said, "Man, don't touch that thing. You can fix all the rest of them, but don't fix mine." <laughs> he said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, man. For guitar, it's perfect." And and Mel, uh, you know, he liked his bass turned to eleven, and and that's where he got his sound. But uh, that was what helped us appear that day, because in spite of uh, on the way to Atlanta, driving down there with a U-Haul trailer behind the van and rolling it down through the ditch it came off uh, all the equipment was some of the the uh, transformers were ripped completely loose from the chassis when we got to atlanta all of the uh, other roadies for the other bands saw that we were in a pickle so they they jumped in there and there must have been 12 different roadies uh putting our stuff up on the stage and soldering wires together, uh, wire ties and wire nuts and duct tape. The transformers sat on top of the cabinets, duct taped to the cabinets, wow. just so they could make the length of the wire work for them. Oh, it was something else. But they, for the, for some reason, 110 degrees in the shade in Atlanta, Georgia, they were working fine that day.
0: Incredible.
1: Yeah. That's and that helped us come on, you know, big and loud.
0: Absolutely phenomenal. To to see everything pull together and get you guys on the map like that. It's incredible. I mean, just talking about that festival, there were some other incredible acts on there, Janice Joplin and Joe Cocker and oh Creedence Clear, what revival. I mean, the, the names just roll off the yes. tongue. I mean, did you get to um, mix
1: backstage with these sorts of people? No. No. <laughs> that was a shame. <laughs> we were we were scared shitless, brother. We, we were just, you know, like uh uh these guys were all superstars. We were just a garage band, 20 years old, from Flint, Michigan. Mel was 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bass player was 19, and the drummer and myself were, were both 20. Incredible
0: stuff, incredible stuff. And and another early story to talk about is probably one you spoke about a million times, the whole Led Zeppelin tour. I mean, you played, what was it, two dates on that tour, and before you were unceremoniously dumped. Whilst you were on stage, you were told to get off and get out of there. What What happened yes. with that one?
1: Well... The first night we were at a uh, public auditorium in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, the people were loving it. They, we have played, I mean, at this time in our lives, we played in Cleveland doing the Upbeat show, uh, which was a television show that was a regional show. So it wasn't just the, in Cleveland. This this was, uh, it went to over as far as Chicago and and over to New York and, and uh, so Pennsylvania, it it got around and uh, the people that showed up at that concert, a lot of them were our fans just from us playing around that area. And they loved it. And they loved that. We were there opening, you know, for Led Zeppelin and that, that it's going to be a good energized concert. And I'm telling you, it was energized wow was that energized in cleveland the following night in detroit at olympia another big massive crowd Uh, we're on stage tearing it up and the people were loving their hometown band
2: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds Go to PantheonPodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
0: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive
1: Metallica merch package.
2: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month, so just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
1: Here they are opening for Led Zeppelin, this big band, uh, and Peter Grant, the manager uh, for Zeppelin, came out and told our manager, Terry Knight, to pull the plug, get him off the stage. He says, or I'm going to pull the plug, get him off, because we had the crowd up. Brother, I'm talking. They were with us 100%, and we were fixing to go into inside looking out, and that would have just brought the house down. There would be no way you could follow that song there was hardly a way for them to follow us even the way we left it and half of the auditorium had emptied out and there was only half the people that you know it was sold out and then uh after an hour and a half after we got off the stage terry came out and said uh because of contractual obligations uh Grand Funk has to leave the stage and oh man, the people were booing, hissing, throwing wine bottles, beer bottles, whiskey bottles. Oh my God. Uh, they didn't want us to leave. And I, and we didn't want to, but we, they pulled our plug and we had nothing left drummer. He, you know, he he was the only one you could hear, but you couldn't hear him very good because uh, the power was gone. So when we went off the stage, uh the fans were disappointed, disgruntled fans. and uh, But it did give some space for Mel, the bass player, and myself to go out into the audience and set at the center of the auditorium about midway. We were just behind the people in front of us. So we watched Zeppelin, and uh, Jimmy Page got his... His bow out for his uh, viola or, or whatever he played that big bow hit, and he was playing his guitar like a, a violin. And I thought this is pretty, this is pretty good. You know, it sounds pretty good. And but they didn't have the uh, excitement factor that we had.
0: Wow. So what did you think after that? Then I mean, you, you've been taken off for for being too good. I mean, did that give you guys a boost in confidence, thinking that you, you you're too good for this level, or you you should be up there, or, or how did that feel?
1: It felt like. We were doing what we needed to be doing. This is what we were supposed to have been doing. People's band.
0: That's it. That's it indeed. And did you ever meet up with Zeppelin again? Was this ever discussed? Did you ever see Peter Grant again or or any of the guys from the band? Never saw them again. (laughs) Wow. An absolute break then there you go um and not long after that the the album closer to home came out and it's an album that uh, was huge for you guys i mean i heard you say in an interview once it was probably your favorite grand funk album as well so so why why that one why did you pick that one
1: well because the song closer to home Though know, this is during the vietnam war and uh, a lot of my friends out of high school got drafted and they were in that war uh we lost friends to that war and, uh, and when I'm your captain came out, I had prayed for that song. I prayed for it, got up in the middle of the night and wrote the lyrics to it. Didn't know it was a song. Cause I'm writing in the middle of the night a lot. Uh, some of the best songs that I would have had, my ass was too lazy. And I laid there and went back to sleep. And, Cause I would say, Oh, I'll, I'll remember that in the morning. Uh, that's never going to happen you got to get up right then and write it down or record it or you know back then it was cassette recorders so anyways i got up and i wrote the words to the song and uh got up in the morning and i'm i'm looking out I've got horses out in the pasture i'm on the farm it's a nice uh a farmhouse built in 1891 uh in a michigan place you know it was, it was me man 100% and I start playing the guitar. I have a acoustic guitar on a stand, and and so I grab it and I start playing. And I was like, "Wow, that's a pretty good lick," you know. I I think, and then I grabbed a, a C chord, but I I went to grab a G, and I I fell short of the G and hit the C, but it was, I think it was supposed to be because when I heard that inversion of the C and I looked at my hands making that I went wow that, that chord just spoke to me it was like magic that morning it was either that or the coffee and uh, and there I and as I'm thinking about man I got to remember the that finger goes there that finger goes there. okay I'm looking at this and my mind went those words maybe that's the lyrics to a song and so I went and got the words and uh, put them down on the table in front of me, hit the red button on my, my cassette recorder and wrote or actually read the words and wrote the music as I'm reading the words. It just came together, took it to, to rehearsal that day. We worked on it, uh, Don and Mel and myself, and uh, the rest is history, man. It was a uh, it was a great uh, rendition for the orchestra because Tommy Baker, the guy who was the band leader on the Upbeat Show in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, televised rock show, um, did all the orchestration for it, and uh, and he heard it in advance. He heard me playing the chords uh, while we were doing the Upbeat Show, and that and that time that we were doing the Upbeat Show, James Brown was on that Upbeat Show. I mean, Yeah, it was great. And Tommy Baker, the band leader for the upbeat show band, uh, ended up playing horn on one of uh, James Brown's tunes that day. And then as I'm showing uh, David Spiro, the chords that I'm playing on, you know, closer to home, I'm playing on my messenger guitar, which was kind of acoustic sounding anyways, when you didn't have it plugged into the amplifier. And Tommy Baker come over and said, man, when you get to that chorus, when you get to that outro chorus, he said, just keep going and going and going and going. And when you don't think you can do another one, give me 10 more. And I went, okay. (laughs) So we did. We did that in the studio. And the rest, uh, you know, Terry Knight mixed it in. But uh, Tommy Baker, uh, with the help of the Cleveland Symphony, put some great stuff on there, and made that song what it was for our our soldiers. That was their song. It's what helped them get through the Vietnam War, the Vietnam experience, the Vietnam nightmare, and helped them to get home. And to this day, when we play it, I always dedicate it to our veterans, to the boys and the girls, that are active duty these days, because they're just like little kids, eh? Uh, You know, when you was a little kid that was like, you do that, well, why do I have to do it? Because I said so, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. that was, we learned how to follow orders pretty early on, Paul. And, And so I have a heart, I have five sons, and I've got grandsons and granddaughters, and and great grandson and granddaughter, uh, and and so I feel for our soldiers, and uh, whether male, female, uh, they're following orders. They didn't invent the wars. They didn't. Uh, they don't even know about the damn things. But they know they got to follow orders. They've just been programmed like that since they was little tiny kids
0: and just talking it then a little bit again about the album i mean one of the, the famous stories from that is the um the billboard in times square i mean it, it's it's a funny story to to, to think back um, was it the, the guys that used to put it up they went on strike so the the, the advertisement for your your album stayed up there for, for much longer than was uh, originally anticipated didn't yes. it? yes
1: it stayed up for like four months uh, <laughs> the first month we paid for it was $50,000 to put that thing up there. So wow. we got $150,000 worth of advertisement for free. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we like that price. That's a good price indeed. Um, yeah. Another big thing to touch on is, is Shea Stadium. I mean, uh, for us in the UK, it's synonymous with the Beatles. But you guys, the, the Grand Funk Railroad, you guys sold it out quicker than the Beatles, quicker than the Fab Four. I mean, right. what's your memories of that experience?
1: Well, that the memories are uh, flying over the stadium in a helicopter and watching it, Paul. Physically, it's flexing. The fans have got this thing rocking. Humble Pies on stage, which was yeah. set up at second base, and Shea Stadium was like a half-circle, it, it, it focused right on second base, so every voice... In that stadium, fifty-five thousand people. When they hollered, it came right to your ears. And uh, wow, what a! I, as I'm telling you this, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Every time I that recall that, and I, I hash it over in my mind. That memory just overwhelms me. Yeah, wow, a lot of love, man. A lot yeah. of love.
0: I bet, I bet. And what was it like being on the stage? Because I remember that the Beatles said that they could hardly hear themselves, let alone anything else. So
1: what was it like for you guys? Well, for us, we had a PA system. <laughs> we had a hell of a PA system. And the fans could hear the drums, the bass, the guitar. I mean, we we had a massive PA system. And the communication between the audience and the the band was on. And I am fueled by the emotional waves that hit the stage from the audience. You know, they they push you to greater heights than than you could ever achieve on your own. So that love, man, that love—it was just lifting me up. And I, it felt like I was three feet above the deck the whole show, just floating around up there. <laughs>
0: Phenomenal. And you mentioned Humble Pie there. I'm a huge fan of of Steve yeah. Marriott. I mean, him, even with the small faces, was was an incredible character, yeah. fantastic front man. I mean, you toured with them in Europe, didn't you? So was it you guys that said, hey, come and play America with us?
1: That's right. And they listened to, uh, they had a big boom box that they would plug in in their dressing room. And we could hear him over there rocking to all the R and B, and you know, and all the Motown stuff that we heard—that's what we were raised on in Detroit and in Flint, Michigan, because uh, W, uh, you know, CKLW uh, in Windsor, Ontario, that was a big. It was like a fifty thousand watt AM station, and back then, Paul, all that all that music was played on AM. FM kind of came on the scene. In 1970 and 71, it just kind of merged as uh, a medium to play music. And when they first came on, the DJs, you could hear them up there going, (laughs) and and they would play, I'm your captain, all these other cuts. And, And later on in life, as I've been doing, going to radio stations, doing interviews and, you know, shaking howdy, thanking them for playing my music. Uh, They would say, Mark, thank you for I'm your captain. Because if we could, if we had to take a dump or we had to get a coffee or smoke a cigarette or get a sandwich, we could get it all done during that song.
0: Oh, i love it absolutely fantastic and we have to touch on another big hit as well especially the ones we know here in the uk i mean uh we're an american band it was the first single to go to number one for you guys now obviously yes. be- before this point you'd had hits you'd had uh, platinum albums multi-platinum albums but this one was your first big number one single i mean how did that feel when that one topped the
1: charts well it was great because uh it was saying stuff you know our publicist at the time and she was she was actually um like co-management with uh, with Andy Cavalieri, her name Lynn Goldsmith. She she came to the band. She says you guys need to do a song that that talks about who you are. You're an American band. It was actually her that triggered the song, and then Brewer came with the lyrics and and two-note guitar chords to to uh, sing it to us. And, but as he's singing it, I'm hearing... Doo-doo-dah, doo-doo-dah, bam, bam, bam. You know, I'm hearing this stuff. And I and so I I say to him, well, listen, I can hear this. And I played it. And he goes, yeah, man, that's it. That's really it. That's rocking. And uh, and I then I said, well, this song has got to have a cowbell. And Brewer goes, I don't have a cowbell. I said, well... You need to get a cowbell, you know, because this, this song really needs a cowbell. I said, just think of all the hit songs with cowbells in them. This one really could be something. And he says, okay, I'll stop and I'll pick one up on the way to rehearsal. I said, pick six of them up and we'll pick the best one that matches the tone of the chords that we're playing during this song. So he brought a bunch of cowbells in the next day and we picked one and it Kank, kank, and it was the right one for that song and uh and the drum intro on that I could hear that in my head as he was playing and showing us the song that he wanted to to hear I'm I'm thinking man it's, it's got to start with a drum beat intro and and you know launch this song uh and and I told him what I heard and and I actually taught him how to play I couldn't sit down there and play it myself because I'm not a drummer, but I could hear that song. I could hear the beat and I said, it's gotta be this. So uh, I had a lot to do with that song as far as the construction of it, but Don Brewer wrote the words and uh, any other song that was a co-write with Brewer and myself on the, on these albums, it was him, lyrics, me, music. So when this song uh, we got done recording the song at criteria in in Miami uh, beach florida the brewer came to me and he says mark i've never had 100% write credit on any songs do you mind if i take it on this and i go no go ahead yeah cuz i'm a nice guy and i'm going to remain a nice guy i don't care how bad i get screwed i just got that's a lesson in forgiveness I, i'm learning how to do it
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, incredible, incredible. Um, just a quick question as well. I mean, you guys were a three-piece for, for so long, but you became a, a four-piece, didn't you? Craig Frost joined the group. Yes. And I heard an, another interview saying that at the time you weren't best pleased with that. You thought you should have stayed as a three-piece. Is that right?
1: I wanted to keep it three-piece, but I found out later uh, Brewer's motives for wanting four-piece was so that he could write more music. And him and Craig Frost ended up penning a few songs together.
0: Someone else to touch on Frank Zappa. I mean, you guys worked with him on, on an album. I mean, what, what did he bring to, to the recording process then? I mean, cause he was obviously uh, an incredible musician, very talented, but very off the wall as well. So what did he bring to, to the album and to you guys in the recording studio? Yes. Off the wall.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, he told us what sold him on working with us was when, he came into the recording studio, which was out in the woods. We called it the swamp. It was on some land that I owned there. And uh, the, the corridor, The when you open up the double door to the studio, it was a big wide uh, you know, corridor so that you could get equipment, amplifiers and what have you, nice wide doors. He opened it up and there was Craig, the keyboard player, and he had a hold of, he reached through his legs, bent over, and he had a hold of Brewer's leg, and he was farting on Brewer's thigh. <laughs> and, and Zappa threw up his hands. He says, I'm in the right place. Okay. I know I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> that sold him on working with us. Honestly. So what did he bring to, to, to the musical side of
0: it all then? Because obviously he was, he was very keen on doing different things, wasn't he?
1: yeah he he's his uh take and and the way he made that music breathe it had a nature to it that uh you know and besides the fact we didn't use a click track okay no click track ever ever it was all of our music was played to Brewer either getting excited about something and rushing it or laying back. It always had a map that it was following, but it never followed the clock. And that's that's the biggest difference I see in the music of our era and the music that is cut, you know, since the the 80s, everybody started putting a click track. And you're playing to a freaking clock, dude. You're not playing to a drummer who's a human being who has, you know, tempo problems or it, it's not a problem. I mean, shit, you're supposed to flow and you know get excited and maybe rush it a little bit in that part or maybe even play louder during this part. You know, uh, that's that's human, but to play to a clock and it's got everything got too damn, uh, you know, critical. Yeah, oh, we got to do it and, and everything. And now you can correct if you made a mistake, it's okay. We have this pitch thing that'll bring your voice right in tune. It, you could sing like shit. And it'll be okay, because we can fix that. you know. <laughs> yeah, very
0: different, very different. Uh, we're talking about some big stars, and another big star I hope you don't mind touching on is is Jemi Hendrix. I mean,
1: oh, he became
0: good friends of yours, but I remember, again, another story you told once of, of being starstruck on meeting him. Can you, can you remember that?
1: Yes. We played the Fillmore East in New York City, and when I got off the stage, our manager, Terry Knight, was leading the way, up back up to the dressing room, and he never led the way to the dressing room prior to that night, and I I thought it was kind of funny that he was up in front of us. He usually followed us, so he went up and he opened my dressing room door, and I went I went to step in there, and here's Jimmy. He had his hat on, you know. He had this shit eating grin on his face. Like, how you doing kid? And I just went up to him and I, the most intelligent thing I could come up with to say was you're a great guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I, I got to know him after that. We had been on several festivals together and we hung out and talked and And we didn't talk music. We just talked life. We talked fishing. We talked, you know, uh, growing up. And uh, what a great guy he was. And what a tragic, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that he had to leave the way he did. And so early, man, so early. He was just a young guy. But what talent he had to make that guitar cry, to make it sing, to make it talk and make a statement to make it protest man nobody has had that kind of ability since there's no one could touch him no one can he was just he was a gift man he was a gift from god and now he's back with god (laughs) absolutely
0: you're saying how devastating it was can you remember when you found out about his, his sad passing
1: yeah and I just, I cried because I was just getting to know him real good. And I just thought, man, that lovely, beautiful soul. Because we had talked about playing music together. He loved my voice. You know, I said, I I told him what, you know, I learned all my shit just listening to you. And he, uh, he told me I had a wonderful voice. We should do something together. And so I don't know what we would have done, but uh, it was good to think of it and and sad to think that we no longer had that opportunity. When he left, it was wow. Wow, I couldn't even believe it. I, I had a hard time uh, just letting go of him.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, and somebody else I'd like to touch on quickly, if you don't mind, uh, another legend you've worked with, uh, Ringo Starr. You were part of the, the All-Star Band. I mean, for was it 94, 95 sort of time? I mean, what were your memories of that? 95,
1: and it was another educational run for yours truly, <laughs> being around uh, accomplished uh, peers in the music industry and uh and being around ringo cuz he was just a, a a wonderful person and and i could see where uh when he went on youtube and put that thing out i'm not going to sign anything ever again don't send me anything i'm over it don't uh i'm you know he was just tired of being plagued by every because, uh, you know, he put a hat on. He could put the baseball hat on and sunglasses, go outside. He looks like Ringo with a baseball hat and sunglasses on. He, he, there was no disguise in him. And uh, and he was constantly plagued by people who wanted to get his autograph. Even flying over to Japan, we were up in first class. And, and uh, people would come up. The kids came up from coach. And they got papers and pens and they, Mr. Ringo, can you please sign? And he, he was over it, man. I, I I saw that at that point in his life, he didn't want that kind of access. He didn't want people having that access to him. He, he couldn't be free uh, like a normal human being. Um, and even when we got to Japan, um, we were all doing this press conference and there was a big table that we were setting on on stage and we all had chairs we were sitting there and this young gal came up and she said i would like to ask mr finer question and i stood up and i said yes honey what, what would you like to ask me and she said what is it like working with beetle and i said well let me tell you something honey Ringo puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like I do. And he gets up because he was in the center, kind of like the last supper, like Christ and all the disciples. <laughs> well, here's Ringo and all the band members. He gets up. Thank you, brother. And he comes over and he gives me a big hug because I recognized him for being just a man, a man. And that, uh, that was that was like a very enlightening moment for for me i i then had a good grip on why he was so adamant about not signing things and not even wanting to the desire had left him long ago and anyone i don't care who you are anyone that was pestered that much would feel the same damn way
0: yeah Absolutely, and just talking about that that experience. I mean, who who was on the the band with you at that point? Because obviously Ringo puts together some incredible uh, mixes of, of musicians and things like that. So who who was around the band at the same time as you?
1: Well, Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals, mm-hmm. Randy Bachman from BTO, and uh, guess who? Uh, we had Billy Preston on keyboards, a virtuoso keyboardist, singer, John N. Twistle on bass guitar, (laughs) Zach Starkey, the monstrous drummer. Uh, You know, Ringo had called me the day uh, after that I uh, accepted, you know, going into the all-star band. Ringo called me from Monaco and he said, you know, I'm not the drummer on this tour. And Mm -hmm. I said, oh, you're not. Well, then who is? He said, my son, Zach. And I thought, oh, yeah, I heard about Zach already. He can lay down the law. And he sure enough did. Uh, So (laughs) with him and Mark Rivera, Mark Rivera played uh, guitar, sang, did saxophone, did uh, percussion on the congas. Uh, What a great uh, addition to any band uh, Mark Rivera would be. Bunch of guys, great guys. And I learned how to play the chords from the people who invented them.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic stuff. Now, uh, it's been a fantastic pleasure speaking with you, Mark. I mean, at the moment, you, you're still out and about on tour on the road, touring with uh, Mark Farner's American Band. I've seen on your website, you've got dates in in April, March, May, things like that. I mean, you're still going out on stage and still enjoying the, the thrill of playing this music yes. to an audience like that.
1: Yes, it's I'm alive, brother. And I have appreciation for those fans uh, who made me who I am. I'm not uh, lifting myself up in any way. I don't have to because they are lifting me up, brother. Yeah. I'm telling you, uh, it's, a, it's a humbling thing to take the stage uh, in front of that many adoring fans who just love my ass Seriously, they love my ass because I said something in a song that they agreed with and they've been uh, agreeing with ever since uh, back 1969. It's been a while. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Brilliant stuff. And in terms of everything else, I mean, what are you up to for the rest of the year? I mean, what, what do you have plans? What do you do when you're not out touring?
1: Well, I do. Uh, I've been fishing with my wife. We've been out ice fishing. We were in winds the other day that lifted the ice shanty up. We were sitting on the bench seat in there and the wind blew. F- we always put your back into the wind. So the. but it's like having a little sail out there on the ice. And I didn't have anchors as guys will drill anchors into the, the ice and tie the, their sleds off or their coops they we call them. They'll tie it off to those anchors, but, I didn't have any, but I still wanted to fish. So we were in there fishing, we're catching perch. And all of a sudden, both of our asses came up in the air like, whoa. And I went, oh my God, we got to get out of (laughs) here. So it was quick. We packed up through everything. It 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 was snowing and blowing so hard. When you look to see the shore, it was not there. It was just a snowstorm. So, uh, it was kind of sketchy, but my wife, Lisa, uh, she's, she's got good eyes and she said, we got to go this way up towards, I just saw a blue house up there when it was a little clearing, we got to go this way. So we went up there and got, and we got out and we went home and cleaned the fish and had a perch dinner. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, that's what I love doing. Being outside, we plant a garden every year. We have organic non, uh, uh, gmo seeds non-gmo anything all organic heirloom variety stuff and we're really into eating healthy and non-gmo man for us we can't even think about going back now i'm i'll be 75 this year i don't take any medicine wow None zero i went to the dentist the other day and and they, on on the questionnaires, what kind of medicine you take? Zero, 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 zero. He says, wow, you're, you're almost 75 and you ain't taking any medicine? I say, hell no. I don't want to be on, you know, let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food.
0: A great way to live by. Well, you stay safe when you're out there fishing, uh, Mark, next time. And uh, absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for telling me
1: all your stories. Thanks, Brother Paul. Good to be here with you. If I don't see you in the future, I'll see you in the pasture.
0: <laughs> Wonderful stuff. And a big thanks to the wonderful Mark Farner for sharing his stories there. Right, it's the time of the show now where I give you my top five and you're going to get my top five songs from Grand Funk Railroad, of course. Now remember, it's my personal choice and I'd love to hear how you agree or disagree with the list. So let's see what you think of these then. My favourite five songs from Grand Funk Railroad. At five is the opening track to their album, E Pluribus Funk. It's a fast, high-energy, fun, upbeat track, and to be honest, the name says it all. At number five is Foot Stomping Music. At number four is a cover that they stamp their style all over. Originally by The Animals, Grand Funk put this on their second album and it became their only top 40 hit here in the UK. At number four is Inside Looking Out.
1: I said nothing.
0: At number three is a track most would call the Magnum Opus. It's an epic at nearly ten minutes long that Mark wrote with Vietnam very much in mind. From the album of the same name And number three is I'm Your Captain Closer to Home. My number two is the opening track on their third studio album. It's a monster, loud and heavy, riff-laden song that brings a touch of soul in it too. Number two is Sin's A Good Man's Brother. And at number 1 for me is the band's first number 1 hit in 1973 produced by Todd Rundgren. It appeared on the album of the same name. It's another Rip Roarer, a proper anthem which is why it appears in VH1's Top 100 Hard Rock Songs of All Time. My number 1 song favorite from Grand Funk Railroad is We're an American Band.
2: As long as we can-
0: So there you go, my top five songs from Grand Funk Railroad. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. What's your favourite track of theirs? Message me on the social media platforms, or you can email me, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, and I'll give you a mention on next week's show. And remember, check out Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for all the Vintage Rock Pod latest. Well, that's it for me and this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get all your episodes that are released every single day. And I'll be back tomorrow with another of those This Day Rocks. So until then,
2: take care. It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football